Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Bandroom Podcast. My name is Dylan Maddox. And I'm Kate Nishimura. And here we are for another exciting episode. I usually say that right before the interview, but I'm just really excited to be here because <laughs> I've been working my tail off and this is a great treat to be joined with you, Kate. And how are you doing? I am doing just fine. I am planning for my first in-person residency since March 2020, yeah. uh, next month. And I'm, I've been trying not to get my hopes up or like get too excited about things in case things don't happen. So knock on wood, uh, that, that this goes ahead. But anyways, I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to band and, and it's a bit surreal to be, um, imagining being in front of a band again for the first time in a very long time. So yeah, I'm excited about that. I'm very excited for you because <laughs> I was also, and I also saw this, this wonderful picture of you with a nice shiny new baton because, because <laughs> yeah. this residency that's coming up, it's not only as composer, but it's also as conductor. It is really nice to be asked to do that. And yeah, I got a new baton after my last conducting gig, which was in March, 2020. And um, I never wow. got to use it. So <laughs> I'm really excited. Here we go, breaking it in. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was thinking of snapping mine. My, I have a nice one now. What? But I was thinking, because I want a new one. I always just want a so new one. So you have one. to it's snap like, it in order to replace it? Yeah. I give, it to to give, give it to someone else. Give it to someone in need. And I'll, of I'll just lie that I lost it. So my <laughs> wife lets me buy another one. Um, anyway, we're going off on a tangent, folks. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I really want to tell you that we had a wonderful conversation with Dr. Tanya Mitchell Spradlin, who is Director of Wind Studies at Penn State University, as well as Assistant Professor of Music there. Uh, and we had just a great conversation about hearing you know, her path as we usually hear about our guests, but as, uh, as well as, uh, just kind of programming inclusively is that just what she had to say on it today. I, it was great because we mm -hmm. talk about it so much and, and, uh, sometimes we just talk about it, but today it, what she was saying, like whacked me in the face <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> I need to use this. So I, I am really looking forward for you to hear this episode. Yeah. I almost hesitate sometimes to ask about this topic because mm. it's just so like maybe overdone or, you know, right. everybody's asking about it, talking about it these days, but I'm really glad that we, that we included it in this conversation because yeah, I absolutely agree. Her perspective on, on that and on everything that we talked about um, yeah. was, was really, really fantastic. Absolutely. And yeah, just yeah. to, uh, as we always say, to hear someone's why, and to hear mm -hmm. her why stay consistent literally from the beginning of her musical life to where she is now is uh, a really wonderful thing to see. But before you hear all of that, would you consider doing us a favor? And what favor might that be, Kate? Well, if you could make sure that you've hit like, subscribe, follow, whatever the applicable button is to push uh, for the Bandroom podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. That would be super, super awesome. If you want to take it one step further, you can leave us a rating and or a review and let us know what you think of the podcast and make sure to share it with your friends or teachers or students or whoever else you think may enjoy hearing this conversation and all of the others in our archive now. That would be really, really helpful. Absolutely. And thank you to all of you who have done that already. We, I always see the little number. The more stars I see, the happier we are. Um, Seeing stars. <laughs> yeah, stars, stars. Um, and uh, other than that, 
we recorded a fun bonus episode. This one was fun, but maybe after the fact. But uh, Tanya shared a story uh, about an experience with an honor band that she, that she conducted. And you can hear that bonus episode if you become a patron of the Bandroom Podcast by visiting patreon.com slash bandroompod. That's patreon.com slash bandroompod where you can hear that bonus episode many more. And if you really want to support us, you might even be able to get a coffee mug out of it, which is pretty exciting. So check it out, patreon.com slash bandroompod. Without further ado, here is our conversation with Tanya Mitchell Spradlin. Here we are for another exciting Bandroom podcast, and today is a very exciting day. We are joined by Dr. Tanya Mitchell-Spradlin from Penn State. Welcome to the Bandroom, Tanya. Thank you, and thanks for so much for having me here. We'll start where we always start. Where, why, and how did your musical journey begin? Ooh, okay. So um, I grew up in... I grew up in Lawrenceville, Georgia. I usually lie and say I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, because no one knows where Lawrenceville is. Um, in a sort of kind of musical family in that my mom, uh, very, very at a very early age, had us all playing in the samba band in Atlanta called Earthshaking Samba. Nice. Um, it was like really cool. We did parades. We played in clubs. Yes, we were kids, and the band played in clubs. So uh, <laughs> after, <laughs> after we played, we'd have to go wait in the car. Uh, my mom was also a percussionist. She drummed in Drum Cafe, um, which is an African drumming group in Atlanta that traveled around and kind of did uh, corporate events and had everybody playing instruments and moving together. I started playing uh, piano when I was uh, six or seven or something. And then I had uh, a little keyboard where I'd have to follow the lights on the keyboard. And, you know, that's how I learned how to play. And then eventually I, I took lessons. So lots of music in the house. I think um, we also did a lot of chores in our house. Uh, how does this relate to my musical journey, you ask? <laughs> um, yeah. Whenever we did chores, it was always signaled in our house early in the mornings by loud music playing throughout the house. So mm -hmm. we'd know that when there's music playing in the house, okay, we got to get up and uh, we got to get up and clean, uh, which you would think would be a negative association, but it actually, <laughs> I don't want to do this. Yeah. <laughs> it actually made it a lot more fun. And it was all different types of music, like uh, everything under the sun. So we'd wake up and there'd be, um, uh, like Franz Liszt on one day, and the next day it'd be Bob Marley, and the next day it'd be uh, Lady Smith, Black Mambazo. So just a little bit of everything. Cool. Um, and I that, that was really, really... Oh, and Enya. There was a big Enya uh, <laughs> phase as well. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so I think subliminally, uh, just the idea of having music as part of my life was something that was trained from a very early age in a, a kind of non-traditional, non-classical way. And then mm -hmm. like many, like many American um, band people, I started playing an instrument in the sixth grade and continued playing. And that was the clarinet. I continued playing the clarinet um, all the way through school. And that's the instrument that I studied heavily when I went to college. I also started playing trombone um, 
early um, in my middle school career because my middle school band director told me that if I could make Allstate on the trombone as a clarinet player, he'd throw me a party. Um, (laughs) And that year I made Allstate on the trombone, not on the clarinet, but on the trombone. (laughs) The voice of God. (laughs) Um, And I had mentioned that I started playing uh, piano early and I continued playing piano. I took piano lessons starting at nine and I took those lessons up uh, through college. Um, So I really credit my piano teacher as being you know, one of my first ever role models for um, a musician who works hard, who practices, who cares a lot about uh, the depth of the music they're playing and also a lot about people. And that that's really the aspect of, of it being about people is really, really important to me. And I think she helped mm-hmm. instill that in me. So that's that's kind of the the beginnings of the Tanya music story. You know, Kate, I often think back to my time at music camp and how important that time was not only in my growth as a musician, but as a person. I feel the same way. My first time performing original music in front of a big audience was actually at a music camp, and many of the people I met at camp are still friends and colleagues of mine today. And 2022 marks the 60th anniversary of the Interprovincial Music Camp. That's right. 60 years of being Canada's most comprehensive music camp. IMC offers specialized camps for all levels of band, orchestra, musical theater, rock, jazz, and songwriting. Students can learn from faculty that include members of major symphony orchestras, Juno and Grammy Award winners, touring musicians, and music educators. Located at the beautiful Camp Manitou on Manitowabing Lake, in the heart of the Muskoka-Perry Sound region of Ontario, Canada, IMC facilities are second to none, with fully equipped cabins, amazing food with a special diet chef, I might need one of those, and daily concerts by world-renowned faculty and guest artists. IMC offers many traditional camp activities we know and love, including swimming, sailing, water skiing, beach volleyball, and much more, as well as evening programs for the campers each night after the faculty concert. IMC provides young musicians with comprehensive and exceptional musical training. With faculty members who are some of Canada's finest performers and educators, they bring a wealth of teaching experience and performing skills and are passionate about sharing their love of music with young musicians. Don't miss the opportunity to grow, be inspired, have fun, and make memories that will last a lifetime. Stay connected by following them on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and Twitter to learn more about how you or someone you know can celebrate 60 years of the Interprovincial Music Camp. Visit campimc.ca. That's campimc.ca. I thought, I thought you were going to say one morning you were awoken by the sounds of Sousa or something. And it was that moment that I decided <laughs> I was going to be a band director. <laughs> but no, that's, that's cool. That's great. Um, but what was it, if it was not that loud music, uh, that, that led you to want to go study music at, at university? Yeah, I think um, 
I have always wanted to be specifically a band director since I was in the sixth grade. So I knew I wanted to teach band in the sixth grade. And I think it's because I loved playing with my peers. I loved the feeling of that human connection and the shared goal and something so much bigger than our little 11, 12 year old selves. Um, I also had a ton of humans in that sixth grade class. Um, some sort of music class was a requirement at my middle school, band orchestra mm -hmm. course. And it was a huge mm -hmm. middle school. It funneled into a high school that was at the time the third largest high school in the state of Georgia. So just some giant schools oh, wow. and lots of kids. And with that many humans, it's kind of just hard to, I think, make sure everybody's doing the same thing at the same time and keep everything moving smoothly. So we had a lot of times where instruction stopped and we'd have to do the disciplinary thing where we would go outside and stand in the hallway until everyone's quiet and come back in. And I really did not like that. <laughs> and so I think at that age, at sixth grade, I thought, you know, I want to be a band director and um, we are going to play and we are going to make music and we are going to enjoy it. And we will use the bulk of the time like playing and investigating mm -hmm. what's, you know, how we can make some sort of magic happen together as a group. Um, so I think that was kind of a little bit of, of a catalyst. And I thought this mm -hmm. is definitely what I want to do. And then everything else just kind of perpetuated that and, and validated that. Um, just playing in, in orchestras and playing in youth ensembles and every experience that I had was an enjoyable one. And every experience that I had, I felt was a valuable one, even if it was hard. Mm -hmm. And even if it was frustrating, I never left a band experience thinking, uh, this was an endeavor or a struggle that I'm not willing to put the effort or time into again. Mm -hmm. And I feel like as a result of this activity, I became a better musician and a better person. I met other people. I figured out how to solve a problem. I discovered something beautiful that I didn't know before. I feel like every time I grew a little bit and um, all of those experiences compounded to, I guess, kind of validate the, the little sixth grade me that wanted to be a band director. Wow. I, I hope that we all get to have a Tanya in one of our ensembles because that <laughs> can you imagine if we all had students like yeah it was that's that's a beautiful way of, of saying that and um I I know that after university you you went um you taught in the public school system and specifically in the state that I'm in now actually would you be able to tell us a little bit about your your teaching experience after after university uh, sure. So when I, um, my first ever teaching experience, I guess my, my student teaching, which was on the Navajo reservation in Kayenta, Arizona. Um, and I chose to do that because I wanted a, a different experience and, mm -hmm. um, IU had an opportunity to either teach overseas or teach on the Navajo reservation or teach in, uh, do what they called the, the urban schools project. And every year when I was in high school, I worked at a camp called um, uh, Hearts to Nourish Hope. And it was a music and kind of leadership and drama camp for um, like inner city Atlanta students. And the purpose was we, we wrote a musical. We wrote a musical from scratch and then we per wow. uh, performed the musical at the end of each camp. So I'd spent a lot of time doing that and I thought, okay, I kind of have this experience um, and a lot of time in the schools in Indiana. And I thought, what experience do I not have? I don't have any experience on the Navajo reservation. Um, mm. And that changed my life. And I, I mentioned something about it being uh, 
human first or, or people first. Yeah. Um, that I've never been in a place that was so, um, I guess, familial, like the, the family matters more than everything else. The it's mm-hmm. 100% about human interaction and caring about the depth of a person over everything else. And that was so hard for me. And when I say over everything else, I mean over going places on time, right? So we need to be here at two o'clock. Oh, but you know, so-and-so is having this problem. So we're going to make sure we help them out. And we get there at four o'clock and I'm sitting here like, do we not have clocks? Come on. (laughs) And it took me a while to just slow down and put the people I was with and their well-being and you know that that interaction first over trying to meet a deadline or trying to get somewhere on time um and and so that was a, that was really formative in the time I was there I actually tried to stay and teach there uh but I could not uh I couldn't find a job teaching teaching high school band or teaching middle school band at the time I was looking so I ended up finding the this awesome awesome job that I love very much. And I'm still in communication with a lot of uh, students and parents at Shambly High School, uh, which is just outside of Atlanta um, in DeKalb County. And I taught there for four years and it was a phenomenal teaching experience. And the students were excellent and so eager and willing. And um, I still talk to to many of them. I'm still engaged with many of them. Uh, but that was my first job, and um, I think I was very, very fortunate to have had a job like that one to start my teaching career. That's awesome. I love that you mentioned that it took you a while to just kind of take a step back and slow down. And I, I can imagine that you would have learned so much from that that you now apply to so many other things. So many of us are just in this constant state of go, 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 and always feeling like we're rushing and like we're late and, and whatever we're supposed to be doing is the absolute most important thing in the whole world at that time. And I imagine that that perspective shift, um, was, was a a good thing. Um, and it's really nice to hear about that. So you're now teaching at Penn state and we'd love to hear about your path, um, after the roles that you spoke about and, and how it led to your role now at Penn State. Sure. I can say one thing about the slowing down is when I <laughs> left, then I quickly sped back up again and I, <laughs> and I had to force myself, okay, remember the things you learned, stop yeah. stressing. And so it's just a, it's a constant battle. Even now it's a constant internal struggle sure. to make sure to slow down. Um, so yeah, after I, I taught at Shambly High School for four years, and while I was teaching at Shambly High School, I did my master's degree in music education at the University of Georgia, um, and it was um, several summers, full time in the summer. The same professors who taught the class during the school year taught in the summer, um, and then I did research with my high school students, and my research was on uh, efficacy of, of practice and a variety of different techniques. Um, you know, do we learn more by having an oral stimulus and without even playing our instruments, how much can we learn by just listening, reviewing the score, reviewing our parts, um, maybe buzzing, moving our fingers versus just sitting down and and playing and practicing over and over. So there's, um, I found that there's a lot of growth that can happen in the musician from using those external, uh, stimuli in addition to sometimes, um, in, instead of. Uh, but often in addition to practicing with our instruments. 
Um, and then I, uh, I left after four years, I saw a graduating class through and I went to the university of Kansas and that's where I did my, uh, my DMA in wind conducting. I, uh, I think I knew I wanted to go to the university of Kansas because Paul Popeil was my first ever conducting teacher at Indiana university. Hmm. And, oh, cool. uh, he had a huge effect on me. Um, I think this, the way that he was able to balance just, um, kindness and humor with the ensemble and without them losing focus and a high level of, of, um, professionalism and performance. Um, I really enjoyed like this whole idea that it's, it's okay to smile and laugh and, <laughs> you know, enjoyment is encouraged without, uh, yeah. the music suffering. I really like that. And so I, I went out to Kansas and prior to studying at Kansas, I don't even think I had said the the word, the state, the name Kansas, you know, more than 10 <laughs> times in my life. <laughs> so my family's like, where are you going? Middle of nowhere. Uh, <laughs> and after, so that was a big, that was a little bit of a shock. Um, but I loved my time there. Uh, I met my husband there. Um, and after that, I, um, I taught for one year at Valdosta State University, which is back in Georgia. So it's interesting. I grew up in Georgia, went to Indiana, uh, came back to Georgia, went to Kansas, came back to Georgia. Uh, <laughs> and then I, uh, after that, I left and I went to the University of South Carolina. I taught there for three years as um, assistant director of bands and associate director mm -hmm. of athletic bands. And every place I've been, I've really, really enjoyed my time and uh, wonderful students, great faculty and, and learned a lot. And, and now I'm in, in a very different place than, than everywhere else, particularly very different than the South, because the biggest, I think, thing to get used to here is the fact that it's October uh, 19th right now, and it's like winter. It's very cold. Yeah. <laughs> That's I want that right now. Dylan's having the opposite shock, yeah. <laughs> oh, weather-wise. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it's too much. It's yeah. too much for my Canadian body. I can't handle it. <laughs> Uh, so I got to Penn State last year. So in the middle of the pandemic, it was very interesting to move during the oh, pandemic yeah, and, and started. Yeah. You know, to this day, I still, you know, don't know what anybody looks like under their mask, you know, <laughs> yeah. unless I see them outside or, or on mm -hmm. Zoom. It's, it's very right. interesting. What was, what was that like? Because I know I, we have faculty here that also, they, they joke that it's this year is like their first second, what is it, their second first year. And I imagine there's some of that for you. I guess now, kind of what what's what's your day to day look like at, at Penn State? Yeah, so I, I still teach a lot of well, I teach all the same things, um, but it's 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 more. It's compounded. We see each mm -hmm. other more. Uh, last year, I did go in in person, and I taught um, all of my classes were in person. But of course, with mm -hmm. COVID policies, mass bell covers, six foot distancing, yeah. and we only did things for thirty minutes at a time. Um, now it's uh, at least with the wind ensemble and all of all of the uh, aerosol producing instrumental ensembles, we rehearse for fifty minutes at a time, and we have a little ventilation break. We come back. Um, I last year knew that it would be a big transition. One because there was a pandemic, and two because my predecessor was at Penn State for. Um, almost 30 years for, for 20, oh, wow. 26 years or so. And so, um, he really was, you know, kind of an institution and, um, mm -hmm. kind of built a legacy of excellence in the bands at Penn state. And so when I started, I tried to be really intentional about 
what our goals were and communicate them openly and often to the ensemble and have them kind of buy in with me um, and talked a lot about what our purpose is. Like, why are we doing this thing? And even though we can only do it for 30 minutes at a time and it's really difficult for you to hear and you're six feet away and oh, we, oh, we can only have a certain number of people in the room. So why is this a value and how can we get, um, like how can we meet this like mission of finding joy and beauty in enacting an aural image from you know a composer's thoughts that then get transferred through the conductor through study that then get transferred to the player who ultimately then shares that vision or that image to the audience and so in doing that um you know, I shared my scores, I shared my mark scores, part of what we did mm-hmm. when um, last year when we couldn't meet very often was the students met together and it really kind of built this um, pseudo Orpheus style rehearsal where half the time they're with me and half the time they were on their own with the resources mm-hmm. from the previous rehearsal, um, recording of themselves, notes from score, access to each other's parts. And I think that really brought everybody together. It brought the yeah. ensemble together because it um, it put a lot of leadership and ownership on them to have an opinion and to have <laughs> a point of view and to learn how to express that point of view. And so now that we're together more, the morale is super high. The students, I am finding them to be excellent leaders. Um, it's been, I think, a lot of... There's always a silver lining in all anything that can end up being negative, right? And I think the silver lining in starting during the pandemic was being able to kind of build that student buy-in, ownership, leadership that I have seen directly transfer to our rehearsals now. That's awesome. Yeah. I I bet that, you know, there are lots of stories like that where you know, in any other situation a normal, quote-unquote normal situation you would not prioritize those same values and you wouldn't necessarily think to make the time for just you know students bonding in that way and fostering leadership from within so silver lining for sure and I love that that ties in so nicely to what you said earlier about you know enjoyment is encouraged (laughs) and it seems as though you're able to really bring that in even during pandemic times so that's really awesome yeah. 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 And, and I was also thinking about um, just the the opportunity for your students to kind of see behind the curtain uh, of, of what what you do and what your scores look like is just a really wonderful thing. Because so often, for some reason, we really <laughs> covet the secret ingredient, whatever that might be, <laughs> and and not show show them what how what our process is and all that. So that's that's really wonderful. Uh, it's no secret that I'm a big band geek. And uh, on social media, I see people, you being one of them, and I admire and look up to you from afar. And one of the places that I, I first saw you was on the uh, Ta Beta Sigma organization. And so I was wondering if you could talk about the organization and your uh, now past involvement with the organization. Yeah, so I first got involved in Greek uh, in bands, sororities, and fraternities actually as a as a freshman at Indiana University because I was in Kappa Kappa Psi, which is yeah. the National Honorary Band Fraternity. Um, 
And then I was a sponsor for either Kappa Kappa Psi or Tau Beta Sigma in, at Valdosta State and the University of South Carolina. And so the first like deep interaction I had with Tau Beta Sigma was in, uh, they asked me to be a, a women in music speaker at one of the regional conferences. And at the time, I was doing a lot of study and, and writing about Joan Towers' fanfares for the Uncommon Woman. I had uh, previously written a paper, and, and I took it to uh, Austria uh, for the EGEB conference. The, it's the German translation is uh, the International Society for the Advancement and Promotion of the Wind Band. Don't ask me to say it in German. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and oh, so- please, no. <laughs> So I called this speech the uncommon woman and um like I, I talked about kind of like the history of women in music and you know advocacy and, and the Me Too movement and the women's march and um yeah, it was just a really interesting experience, a really cool experience because while Ha Beta Sigma, uh, part of the mission is to enhance uh, women in music, it's not for just for women, it's for everybody, it's it's for anyone. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really enjoyed that experience. It was super well run, like very organized and I'm a very purpose and mission driven person and a group that has a clearly defined, uh, mission and value system I resonate with because I feel like that is a, a strong guiding principle for, um, to be successful and then also to have something to reflect upon if things are going really well and if things aren't going well. So I really resonated with that. Um, and then later I had the opportunity to serve as the national vice president for professional relations and kind of the, the biggest task of that was to plan and run the national intercollegiate band. It happens Mm -hmm. at the national convention every two years, every biennium. Mm -hmm. Um, my counterpart from Kappa Kappa Psi was Tony Falcone, who teaches at university of Nebraska Lincoln. And, uh, this past summer, uh, we both executed our, our first ever, facilitated our first ever National Collegiate Band. Uh, the National Collegiate Band, sponsored by Top of Sigma and Kappa Kappa Psi, always features a phenomenal kind of renowned conductor and always commissions a brand new piece of music. And so the new piece that was commissioned to be performed this year was um, Alex Shapiro's Symphony Suspended, Four movements with electronics. The first uh, movement doesn't use electronics. Like really, really, mm-hmm. uh, uh, very cool piece. Very um, each of the movements is like, totally different in character and energy. So it's got a little something for for everybody. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of complexity, a lot of emotional depth as well, because it was written kind of in and around and about the the pandemic. Um, Mm -hmm. So it's a really beautiful, lovely piece. And it was conducted by Cynthia Johnston Turner, uh, that whole concert. So it was, um, it was just like a a dream to sit (laughs) in the audience and watch this piece come to life and watch Dr. uh, Dr. Johnston Turner work. Um, It was incredible. It was pretty Um, magical on the live stream too. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yeah. We were both there. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, it was, um, so it was a little stressful putting it together. And actually I was, I wasn't sure if it if it was going to be able to happen because I don't know why in my mind in March of 2020, when the pandemic started, I was, I thought, Oh, well in August, I'll just do this concert at Penn state. Cause the pandemic will be over. 
oh, second semester, <laughs> I'll just do this because the pandemic will be over. Oh, in the summer, you know, and then it that just didn't happen that way. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we were still able, the students were still able to play. Uh, they're still in ensembles a little bit smaller than it, it usually is. But um, when, I think that really speaks to kind of the need for musical engagement, that need to mm-hmm. be with other people doing something that you just physically cannot do by yourself. You abs- you just cannot, you cannot duplicate and, and replicate the feeling of playing in an ensemble um, at home the way you can with other people. And the way the mm-hmm. National Intercollegiate Band works is it's students from all over the country. Um, and so I, I think that speaks a lot to kind of that human need and desire to to create something alex's piece with with cynthia um that was kind of the first time i saw a band back together again (laughs) so it was a really important kind of thing for 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 me um thank you for all your work with the organization (laughs) you know kate I often think of all the fantastic friends and colleagues that we have in our life, many of which, you know, we've known since we were in high school. Yeah, I have so many just from my time playing with the National Youth Band of Canada. And experiences like performing in the National Youth Band are so, so, so important and provide you the opportunity to network with some of Canada's finest young instrumentalists. Not only that, but the opportunity to perform with renowned Canadian conductors and nationally recognized guest soloists is a unique and unparalleled musical experience. Absolutely. And an experience that provides inspiration for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And this year is the 30th anniversary of the National Youth Band, taking place in Toronto, Ontario from May 8th to 15th, 2022 hosted by the Ontario Band Association, Yamaha Canada Music, and York University, with a gala concert taking place on May 13th, 2022, along with our friends from the Toronto Youth Wind Orchestra. Meet like-minded people, work with fantastic conductors, guest soloists, and make memories to last a lifetime. To learn how you can be part of the National Youth Band experience, visit canadianband.org slash nybhome. That's canadianband.org slash nybhome to learn how you can be part of NYB 2022. Fantastic. And actually... All of this kind of leads nicely into the next topic that we wanted to chat about, which is inclusivity, which we know is sort of a buzzword these days and everybody's talking about it and asking about it. Um, But you mentioned your presentation, The Uncommon Woman, and having worked with composer Alex Shapiro, who is also a guest on our podcast, and and we love her very much, um, we, we wonder how you approach programming with inclusivity in mind and you can interpret that question however you wish yeah sure um i now have a very uh like i have a very set way of programming to be inclusive that uh, it's a standard i hold myself to and it makes it harder for me to program it makes it take longer (laughs) Mm -hmm. but um it's 
I told you I'm mission and values and purpose driven. <laughs> I feel like that's my my purpose and something I, I really need to be doing. Several years ago, I didn't do this as much or as well. And I think it was maybe five years ago or so I, I said to myself, I'm never going to program a concert again that doesn't have some sort of representation. And I have made that even more specific. So when I got to Penn State, I said, I'm never going to program a concert again for my ensemble um, or even like for an honor band uh, that does not have at least one um, female composer and at least one uh, person of color. So that's two pieces. And then I had mm-hmm. this whole inner battle with myself. I'm like, am I to- is this is this tokenization, or am I, <laughs> or is, should I be doing this? And ultimately, after I decided, no, this is this feels right. This is something that needs to be done. I feel that I am in a position where I can do this successfully. Um, I am willing to do the research. I am willing to read all the spreadsheets and. Um, read all of the, the resources so that I can be most informed when making these decisions. And it takes me a very, 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 very long time uh, <laughs> to, to try to do this in a way that I feel is appropriate and matches the level of the ensemble and is really excellent music that I totally 100% believe in and get really excited about for literally every single uh, concert. So my my kind of programming checklist is, am I making sure, obviously, that the music is, you know, fits the ensemble, whether it be the wind ensemble at Penn State, the symphonic band at Penn State, the honor band? Um, is it something that kind of ignites a fire in me? And will it ignite a fire in the audience? Does it have a span of time period? So I'm a big proponent of... Uh, championing new voices, but not at the, I don't think I, we need to, I'm not trying to get rid of old voices. So I'm mm-hmm. just wanting to merge and have some sort of balance. Um, so I'm looking at, you know, I think I, I sometimes say, uh, if my program were a society, would I want to live in that society? Would it have a variety of ages, <laughs> nice. a variety of ge- uh, genders, a variety of, of uh, styles, a variety, you know, like a little bit of everything? Yeah. Or is it totally homogenous and one key and one mood and one character or one person's point of view? So would I want to live in that society? And that has helped kind of keep me honest. I love that. Oh, yeah. I'm going to use that and adopt that. That's awesome. <laughs> it's a really cool way of thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, just a, a lot of really great things to to think about um, programming wise, because um, so often now we we're having more discussions uh, about this, which is really important. And always, I I come across someone who goes on this big excellent repertoire rant, um, and it <laughs> it drives me nuts um, because there. I mean, there is great repertoire written by diverse composers, first of all. Um, and how else are we to uh, kind of discover the new great repertoire as well? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I really love kind of your checklist and, and and to hear how thorough you are with it. Like it's not something to take lightly. It's not something we just go to J.W. Pepper and, and check, go look in that category. But to really hear about the work and effort that you put into it is really important. And kind of leading into that, 
Um, you led a, a consortium uh, premiere of composer Aaron Perrine's Beneath the Canvas of Green. And you have a, a great track record of working with composers and um, commissioning new music. So we're wondering, could you tell us about your experience working with composers and why it's important to be part of the, the building process in the band medium? Yeah. Um, um, so another thing on that, that kind of uh, checklist of you know, programming is also some opportunity to collaborate, whether that be collaborating with the composer on the concert or collaborating with the community in some way. Um, we recently did a concert where we collaborated with um, the Nittany Ballet, and then we worked cool. with um, a composer who was on the concert as well. And so um, that connection between the player and... Like ultimately a composer writes a piece and the players have to play the piece and that's how the piece gets heard. You know, it's not mm -hmm. just, it doesn't just sit there on the page. And so if the players are not aware that a human being is behind this and mm -hmm. yes, you can, you know, you're allowed to ask them questions and talk to them <laughs> and, uh, tell them we that you liked, <laughs> right. <laughs> and then you tell some students that I'm like, really? <laughs> that they're not going to be annoyed that I'm just emailing them to tell them I like the B section. Like, no, <laughs> it's not going to be annoying. It's going to be well that received. Would make my day. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kate, we'll have to have you come to to Penn State so we can we can all talk yeah, to you and share experiences with you. <laughs> right. I think that that whole connection and that that ability to get outside of just the the one dimension of playing really well, which is an extremely important dimension. Like, don't get me wrong. Uh, it's critical um, to mm -hmm. be kind of masterful on your instrument, to have the ability to do whatever a composer asks you to do, and then to be able to do it with some sort of personal expression that makes it meaningful to you and to the audience is an extremely important task. And in addition to that, um, having a connection with the piece and having a connection with composer is important too and could even elevate that level of performance and elevate that level of connection to the piece itself. And so having that aspect is a critical one and a crucial one that um, is on every concert. Um, it also helps kind of, I think for the student, we, you know, there's the buzzword of lifelong learner and mm -hmm. I do resonate with that, but I also think, you know, lifelong, um, um, appreciator and someone who is curious, like someone who is able to be uh, curious for the rest of their lives about music is something that I think is important to, um, is, is important to instill in musicians, whether they be music majors or non-music majors, the music majors might have more opportunities to, to have their questions answered and more opportunities to, to be engaged because of the nature of the degree where non-music majors have, um, you know, just less exposure. Um, so interacting with the composers and being able to ask those questions and being able to just be engaged in the process outside of the uh, tactile, physical playing um, is a necessary one in, in keeping us moving forward. Um, you also asked, you know, in terms of building the wind band and talked about Aaron Perrine. So I think Aaron Perrine was one of the first composers that I'd spent, um, a lot of time with when I was at the university of Kansas, mm -hmm. because he is a friend of the university of Kansas and, uh, Paul Popeil had played a lot of his music and therefore Aaron Perrine was on campus a lot. 
And when I needed to figure out what I was going to write or what I was going to do for my, um, for, for my paper, my document, uh, my teacher said, well, you know, I really encourage you to do something that, um, that is living, you know, instead of writing about or doing an analysis about uh, a piece that's been in existence for a while, why don't you analysis about the, in, in the uh, a creation? Yeah. And I had never, I hadn't worked with composers very much before. And so I thought, well, I've got this relationship with, with Aaron Perrine already. Um, he's here. Maybe we can, you know, get this thing going. I'd also never led a consortium before. Uh, so it was really, really positive. Mike Compatello was the percussion professor at the University of Kansas at the time. Um, and so there were a lot of times where we all just met together and chatted together about uh, the piece as it was coming together. Um, at the time that it was being written, I was living at living in South Carolina at the University of South Carolina, um, just kind of emailing everyone and emailing Aaron back and forth and talking on the phone Um and there were a lot of you know, changes to the piece. And I was surprised how much he asked for my opinion. And I thought, <laughs> oh, my gosh, me? Like, I thought you're going to, like, write the piece and then I'll just do it. So, uh, so the, the kind of collaborative nature was really exciting to me and something I hadn't experienced before, like a composer asking me what I thought and how this moved and how this worked together was, was really fascinating. Um, and... In, I happen, my husband happens to be a, a percussionist. He had finished his master's from the University of Kansas. And so it was really helpful to say, um, just to be able to ask and, and have this immediate reference to a variety of different colors and textures as a clarinetist that um, are not quite as innate to me as they are to a percussionist. So having this, I also realize in this process, even though I'm a clarinetist, you know, there's not a lot of pieces that feature a percussion ensemble and a wind ensemble. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of pieces for soloist, uh, but not a lot for two or in this piece is four, um, which I thought was, was quite interesting, that kind of evolution of the percussion from being, you know, instruments of punctuation only to instruments that are treated as, as on par to that of the clarinet section, the flute section. Mm -hmm. I thought that was pretty fascinating. I learned a lot about that in the process. Yeah, that's awesome. I love the idea of bringing the percussionists from the back of the ensemble, like the back of the stage to the front of the stage or wherever they are positioned, but just really highlighting the various um, sounds and virtuosity, I think, that those instrumentalists are capable of. It is, like you said, a you know a more unique um approach to to creating a a piece i think and i have to just mention in case aaron listens to this at some point <laughs> that it's just so funny he and i have just such similar ideas when it comes to titling our music so <laughs> i yeah i released a piece <laughs> in September, um, called Beneath the Canopy. And Aaron Perrine commented on it on Facebook and just pointed out, you know, because Beneath the Canvas of Green is sort of just a more poetic way of saying <laughs> Beneath the Canopy. <laughs> We're on the same wavelength and we've got so many other pieces in, in our catalogs that are, that are similar like that. And I, I love his music. Um, it's, it's so much of what you shared is just such great insight for, for us and for anyone listening, um, I think it's really good perspective just to know that <laughs> composers do actually want it to be a collaborative process. At least most of the composers that 
that I know personally. Um, we don't want to just write a piece and then plop, here it is, now it's yours and you do a thing. It, it really, the back and forth is is a beautiful part of the creation process, I think. And from my perspective anyway, it's sometimes it's hard to know how something is going to work, how it's going to feel and sound in person compared to what it what my experience of the idea is just in my own mind or through a, a MIDI rendition of, of the sounds. And it's really nice to have a working relationship with a director or a performer, whoever it is, um, who can kind of toss it back and forth and say, well, you know, if you want this to come out a little bit more, maybe adjusted in this way or so on. Um, I think that's maybe part of the collaborative process that doesn't get talked about as much. So I'm really glad that you highlighted that experience for us. Yeah. And then the the whole process of, you know, it being a consortium and then that ensemble doing the premiere is that while they're rehearsing it, um, you know, that that was a really elucidating aspect too, because it was like, these things that we'd worked on together and then we'd listen to the recording and think, oh, that totally worked. Like, that's so lovely. It came out exactly <laughs> as planned. Or, ooh, we got to maybe, you know, um, <laughs> this could be yeah. edited just a little bit to be a little bit more effervescent or a little bit more shimmering mm -hmm. there in the texture. And so, um, yeah, you, that process, the actual putting it together, um, that's the fun part. Definitely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I I think it's important for conductors to also latch on to what you were saying, and because you know it's not something we're kind of raised with right away is working with composers, but don't be afraid to to reach out, don't be afraid to to give feedback and and all that stuff. And I also need to say what a strangely small world it is because I just had coffee with Michael Compatello. Oh hey, <laughs> um, yeah, there. So I'll say hi. He went to school with my wife. So yeah, it's a crazy small world. Yeah. That's how it is in the music biz. That's <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we have sadly reached our final question for you today. But before we get to that, I'm just going to remind our listeners that the three of us are going to go on to record a fun bonus episode with Tanya. Mm -hmm. And it is a mystery as to what the... <laughs> epic story of the day will be but if it's gonna you be heavy though yes <laughs> if you want to hear this bonus episode and all of the other awesome bonus episodes from our past guests you can access that by going to patreon.com slash bandroompod okay but before we get to the bonus episode tanya if you could give one piece of advice or maybe two to conductors or musicians in general what would it be Oh, I think the advice is, you know, just remember that uh, it's humans. It's humans who are who are doing everything in life. It's humans that we're interacting with. Um, I like to think about it as, you know, I'm not teaching music to people or I'm not teaching this piece to people. I'm teaching people how to play and have an opinion about the music, which is like a really small kind of semantic thing, but it completely mm -hmm. changes the focus onto the, the human being. I think coming out of the pandemic really taught us that uh, we have to be patient, we have to be empathetic, we have to kind of have a lot more grace with ourselves. I mean, I've, I am one of those people who's like constantly really hard on myself to the point where like, as I go to bed, I'm like, ah, oh, I should have said this. No, I should have done that. Come on, Tommy, you should be better. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've had to really work to 
to kind of give grace to myself. And I think, well, um, I, I feel like I'm better at giving it to other people than I am to myself sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I, I, just that reminder that, um, this is a human process and we should remember that there, you know, all the human emotions that go into it, joy, excitement, all the things we're asked to do on the podium, be super vulnerable and asking that of our players too, is a lot easier to achieve when thinking about, about the human element of it. Yeah, that's beautiful. beautiful. <laughs> jinx. And, and <laughs> jinx. Well, who knows if it was jinx? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, a one, wonderful advice t- to leave on. And I don't know why I'm always surprised by this, but it, it's so interesting to hear the evolution of our conversation and how it started with people and how it also ends with people mm-hmm. as, as you are now, not no longer grade six, Tanya but still thinking about people and how important that is to you. (laughs) Um, It's been an immense treat uh, to speak with you this uh, evening for you, afternoon for me. Um, And and I'm so glad that that you could take the time to do this. Um, I know personally speaking, uh, you know, feeling pretty beat down (laughs) the whole grad school thing. And this conversation was exactly um, what I needed. And I, I know that other people who will listen to this conversation will also benefit from it greatly. So thank you so much for joining us in the band room today. Oh, thank you, Dylan. Thank you, Kate. This was the highlight of my Tuesday. And I'm, I'm so delighted and grateful <laughs> to have spent this time with you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for spending time with us in the band room. If you want to learn more about anything we discussed in today's episode, check out the links found on our website, bandroompod.com. If you liked what you heard, make sure to subscribe to the Bandroom Podcast, give us a rating and a review, and tell all your friends about how much you enjoyed it. If you really love the show, maybe you should consider becoming part of our Patreon community, where you can support BRP and get some extra incentives in return. Or you can buy some sweet, sweet BRP merch, helping to offset podcast hosting costs and investments into new equipment so that we can continue to bring you great content and great people. Follow us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube to keep up with what's on the go. If you have any thoughts on today's episode, leave us a comment on our website, bandroompod.com, where your comment might be featured on a future episode of BRP. The Bandroom Podcast is produced by the wonderful Jonathan Wong. And our theme music is Skyline, composed by EKR Hamill and performed by Dr. Gillian McKay and the University of Toronto Wind Ensemble. Stay safe and be well, bandies. Thanks again for stopping by the Bandroom.